Good morning, Christ City. We are fast approaching the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus presents us with his closing illustration. In verses 24 through 27, Jesus paints two contrasting pictures. The first is of a wise man who built his house on a firm foundation. And the second is of a foolish man who built his house on sand. Now the implications are obvious. We might speculate that the exterior of both houses looked the same. Perhaps the one that's built on sand might even look more fancy than the one built on rock, having perhaps the latest home automation features and oceanfront comforts. And yet, despite appearances, the test of genuineness of whether a house can perform is whether it, it performs its intended function. Houses, after all, serve not as bastions to display our wealth, nor our architectural geniuses, nor our idiosyncrasies, but they are ultimately places where we shelter from the elements. And so the question that this illustration Jesus brings is this. Which house will maintain its function and serve as proper shelter? Which house will withstand the storm and persevere through to the end? Jesus makes explicit that answer. The house built on a rock will be the one that survives. Matthew 7.25 says, But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. By contrast, great is the fall of the house built on sand, which cannot withstand the rain, the wind, and the floods, it says in verse 27. Implicit in Jesus' words is that genuine Christ followers are resilient they respond to his words in obedience and have hearts that meekly and humbly abide in him. We're going to look at this passage, these few verses, through three contrasts this morning. And with those three contrasts, there are three application themes. The first, the first contrast is inner versus outer righteousness and the theme of resilience, inner versus outer righteousness and the issue of resilience. The second contrast is hearing versus saying and the issue of authority. Hearing versus saying and the issue of authority. And the third contrast is Jesus himself. Jesus himself and the issue of obedience. So let's dive in. The first contrast, inner versus outer righteousness and the issue of resilience. Clear in this illustration is the refrain that inner and outer righteousness that's been so prevalent throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, this consistent theme of wholeness, teleos, that we studied back in chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, often translated perfect as in verse 48, being brought to its appointed and intended end. This theme of wholeness continues to pervade through to this last illustration here. You see, whole houses do not lack a foundation. And therefore, to be a follower of Jesus means that one must have a, a whole person, an inward-oriented righteousness that begins at the unseen foundations of one's heart. 
By contrast, Jesus was opposing those who claimed to be godly, like the scribes and the Pharisees back in chapter 5, verse 20, but they lacked inner righteousness, inner heart righteousness. These were people who exhibited external acts of righteousness. They fasted. They, they gave offerings. They observed the Sabbath. They would pray. Look, they were pious. They commanded respect. These were people that if I were to stop you in the street and ask you, who are these righteous ones? Who are the righteous ones? You'd kind of give me this no-brainer look and, and point to them. And yet Jesus says, no. Jesus says, no. The test for whether someone is truly righteous is seen through the test of time. The only way to test the foundations of one's faith is to look at its resilience through the test of of time when the storms come. And likewise, the only way to test the genuineness or the, the functional integrity of a house is to see whether it indeed can shelter you from the elements when the storms come. This serves as an implicit exhortation. As we examine our own hearts, does your faith demonstrate the foundational integrity and resilience that Jesus talks about here? Does it reflect a, the fruit of a changed heart? Jesus is saying that while we can say that we are pious, while we can say that we, uh, we love him, we follow him, the integrity of our faith is not shown until it is tested through the storms of life. James argues much the same thing. I reference the Christ City devotional series that we've been doing. That true faith is not just hypothetical, but it results in action. Do we have a righteous heart that seeks to be reconciled with others, not just in theory, but actually when we are in conflict? When there's perhaps sin involved? Do our hearts seek to honor our brothers and sisters? of the opposite gender with respect, not just in lip service, but perhaps when we're lonely and, and depressed and tempted to look at pornography? Are we men and women that seek to hold true to our word, that seek not to retaliate, that seek to love even our enemies, that desires the will of God to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, that seeks with a whole heart to serve God? that actually seeks first his kingdom and his righteousness, even when we are anxious and worried, that seeks to love others as we would wish to be loved, not just in theory, not just in theory, but even when it is inconvenient. And so inner and outer righteousness is this first contrast. Let's look at the second contrast hearing versus saying, and the issue of authority. You see, these verses come as uh, the last illustration in a set of three in chapter 7. And it's really interesting to note the stark difference between the speaking in the previous two illustrations and the emphasis that Jesus has here on hearing. You might recall in chapter 7, verse 15, that Jesus said to beware of false prophets. 
And in verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet here in verses 24 and 26 of today's passage, the emphasis is on hearing. Jesus' words are, Everyone who hears these words of mine. Everyone who hears these words of mine. This shift from saying to hearing in these illustrations, in this illustration rather, is not coincidental. Jesus is saying, in effect, that there will be those who will say things. They might even claim to be of God, i.e. prophets but they will be proven wrong through their fruits. There will be those who, though they call on the name of the Lord, fail to do the will of the Father. By contrast, Jesus here is declaring himself to be the true prophet, the authoritative, definitive voice of God. He is saying that his words matter. What he says, what Jesus says, is revealed objective truth. You see, against the backdrop of false prophets, Jesus here is making this audacious claim that the words that he says actually hold the key to human flourishing. If You hear these words of mine, Jesus is saying in effect, and do these things that I tell you, then you will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, this is no small claim. You see, he's claiming to be the true fulfillment of what Moses predicted in the Old Testament when he was leading the Israelites, God's people, out of Egypt. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Peter later quotes this passage in Acts 3.22, pointing out that it's Jesus who ultimately fulfills this promise. And we read in Hebrews 1, 1 1-2, saying, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In declaring himself to be the true prophet, Jesus is contrasting two ways. The first is found in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words and does them will be like a wise man. And the second way is found in verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. In contrasting these two ways, Jesus is saying two things. First, those who hear me and recognize my authority, Jesus says, that I speak the very words of God, in other words, they will respond in action. And the second is this, those who hear me but do not recognize my authority, well, they will not. They will not obey. Here's the point. Genuine followers of Jesus Christ, those who truly belong to the kingdom of heaven, 
they will naturally obey their king. Let's put this in a contemporary example. During this COVID pandemic, we've been accustomed to regularly hearing many of our world leaders speak. In fact, we've probably heard more briefings and news conferences from our leaders in the past two months than in the past two years. But here's the startling thing. As Canadians, as British Columbians, regardless of our political affiliations, we hear and we respond to the advice given by our leaders. That's Dr. Bonnie Henry, Adrian Dix, Premier John Horgan, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. You see, we listen to them because we believe that they are, at least presently, those in authority who have access to the latest health data. And they have our best interest in mind in order to keep British Columbians and Canadians safe. What I don't hear, what I don't see, for example, is Vancouverites obeying the advice of Washington State Governor Jay Inslee or U.S. President Donald Trump or U.K. Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And so that begs the question, how do you respond when you hear the words of Jesus? How do you respond when you hear the words of Jesus? It makes sense that those who are truly of the kingdom of heaven, when they hear the words of Jesus, they will respond in obedience. And so, so that brings us to our third contrast, the contrast of Jesus himself and the issue of obedience. You see, Jesus was the perfect example of obedience. It should not be lost that Jesus, the son of a carpenter, would use construction as the last example in the Sermon on the Mount. How interesting that even in his authority, you know, this authority that, that people ultimately recognize in verse 29, for he was teaching them, it says, as one who had authority and not as their scribes. How interesting that even Jesus in his authority and declaration that he is the true prophet, even in this, that he would use an example that so relates to his humble humanity. But maybe that's the point. You see, obedience, doing, is not exhibited in these grand gestures of outward righteousness, but in the quiet, humble, steadfast, constant dependence in faith to the one who is king. After all, the rock foundation, the rock foundation that Jesus talks about is Jesus himself. And Jesus is the one who can claim that, indeed, that when the storms came and the rain fell and the wind blew, that he was able to withstand it all. Who went to the cross? Who, despite the anger that was leveled at him with the lashes on his back and the thorns on his brow, people spitting at him, 
did not retaliate. Who sought the kingdom of God and his righteousness above all? Who sought to do only the will of the Father, as it says in John 6.38? Who demonstrated such sacrificial love that it cost him his very life? But there's more. You see, though the storms that Jesus mentions in this illustration can be rightly interpreted as the storms of life, to the ancient hearer, to the Jew that was just sitting there hearing Jesus speak these words for the very first time, they would have heard something else. It would have certainly evoked images of divine judgment the imagery of rains and floods would no doubt have reminded them of the story of Noah, for instance. And so Jesus is saying that those who truly hear his words and do them will be like the wise man who built his house to withstand the ultimate judgment of God at the end of time. You see, in this light, this illustration is incredibly Christ-centered. After all, who is the one who can truly withstand the wrath of God, having borne the weight of all our sin? There is no one except Jesus. And so I want to leave you with a closing image. While in one sense this illustration talks about our own lives and the need for us to examine our own houses to ensure that we are people who are seeking to fulfill our appointed goal and purpose, wholeness, to show mercy as God has shown us mercy, to love as God has loved us, to do God's will here on earth as it is in heaven, to serve him with a whole heart, to fulfill our intended function, to image God while in one sense this is true, in another very real sense, our own houses, though founded in Christ, will never be complete because our true home, our true home, the one where we will truly feel safe and the one where we, we can truly withstand forever the wrath of God and the storms of life is our Father's house. Jesus came that we, his people, might be united to him, that we might live in the Father's house forever, that we might abide with him in the Father's house forever. Jesus says in John 14:1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. How comforting are these words. How comforting are these words that even as we examine the resilience of our own hearts, as we seek to work out our faith with fear and trembling, keeping our own house in order, God is actually preparing for us an eternal home. 
our doing ultimately means our doing ultimately means that we are to abide in him and with him